0: Colossians 3, 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly to you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander,
1: We are in the book of Colossians chapter 3, and as I was thinking through this passage this past week and walking through it, um, I, was, I was thinking uh, I had to do a lot of different things and run some errands through the week. And we all have those things that we do that kind of keep us from seeing and uh, understanding what's, you know, dealing with heavier issues. That we, you know, we have the, the day-to-day activities that we have to deal with. And one of the things that I had to deal with is, uh, not this past week, but just the week before, was getting my oil changed. I hate getting my oil changed. I hate that. And I, I was driving along, and uh, I was coming back from Arthur to see my mother. And when my my dashboard lights up, and it says, service soon, you know, you're, you're, and it has like 5% oil left. And it's this alert where I know I can't drive much longer or my engine's going to, you know, just heat up and, and uh, pretty much explode in a way or just shut down. And so I, I took it to the... Um, Jiffy Lube. And, and as I was in there, they, they ask you, they have like a 5 billion point inspection uh, where they take it apart in the back and they put it back together p- bolt by bolt, it seems like. And they, they walk through, they bring out the air filter and they want to show you the quality of the air filter. And they want to they talk to you about all your fluids and if they know your top off policy. And they go through this list. And, and I like it because they, they tell me about stuff that needs to be taken care of that I haven't thought about. They ask me about my transmission. They ask me about whether I've rotated my tires. They've asked me about my my wiper blades. They ask me all these questions. And I like that because um, I'm too lazy to take care of it myself. And I'm too dumb to remember it all until it breaks. Aren't most of us like that? We don't deal with it until it breaks. And so these reminders are there to help us so that we can prevent it breaking. So they do it before it actually gets there. So we deal with it. Because if we don't deal with it, what happens? It it shuts down. It breaks. And, you know, the same is very true with us spiritually. You know, God gives us his word, and he gives us these things that we are to do, and he warns us about them because he says if you continue in them, you're going to break. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to hurt yourself if you don't deal with these things. So the scripture acts as a warning light for us. Telling us what we need to do, what we need to change, because if as believers in Christ, we know that we need to continually fight sin, we never get done with our fight with sin on this side of uh, on this side of eternity. Until we enter into glory, we'll always be dealing with sin. So God gives us these warnings through his word that we go through them. And he says, don't do this, because if you do, you're going to destroy and hurt yourself. And that's what we're going to learn about today. It's, it's called preventative maintenance. Things that we can do in our lives to help remove and these things that could help uh, could lead us to destruction. And so God has given us this in our passage for today and shows us how we are to live and how we are to, in essence, perform preventative maintenance in our life so that we may not be broken or destroyed. But before we go any further, let's pause for a moment and ask for God's blessing on our time together. Father, I do pray that you speak today through us as your word is preached. Lord, I pray that you help us to understand and know the truths within your word that we might Not just know them, but do them. Lord, as it says within James, it's not those just who know it, but those who do it. Lord, may we be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. May your name be praised in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's start off in verse 5. Paul, by the Spirit, writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He's literally saying, put it to death, execute it, or literally means reckon as dead. Consider it dead to you. He wants us to fight against, and he gives us a list. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Now, the words are used to all describe uh, sexual desire. All of those can talk about that. I mean, the first word here, when he says sexual immorality, the word is pornean, and it's the general word meant to describe or hit all forms of sexual activity outside of the husband and wife relationship. So we're talking about pornography. We're talking about fornication. We're talking about adultery, homosexuality, any other form outside of that husband and wife relationship we are to put to death in us. The next word is impurity. And it's referring to uncleanness or filthiness of every sort, Uh, impurity, things that are not uh, right in the sight of God, things that we want to do, desires that we might have that are outside of God's will and revealed in his word. And the next word, which we have translated passion, is actually pathos and refers to a drive or force that will not rest until it is satisfied. This is those, those desires that we have that we just we keep doing and we won't, do, we won't stop until we satisfy that craving or that desire within us. And then there's the word evil desire, those words right there. And it refers to desire, lust, and has a wide meaning, refer to all evil longing. And then there's covetousness, and refers to insatiable selfishness. Now, again, generally, I think this is referring to a lot within the, the sexual realm. The sexual sphere is what he's talking about. And I think that's not the only thing, but that's the general idea that I think he's trying to prevent. And it, but he puts them all under one heading, and it's under one grouping, and it's an idolatry. Now, when we all think of idolatry, we have a tendency to think of stones. Not stones, but think of little man-made objects or statues. We think of people in, um, in majority world cultures that are bowing down to these statues near mud huts and have all these ideas in our mind. Or we might have those who uh, come from different backgrounds where there are statues or icons and they're, they're venerating them or bowing down to them. But here we see that all of these things are actually idolatry. That idolatry is more than bowing down to statutes. But it's treating anything that is not God like God. So... We see here that he's saying he wants us to put it to death. He wants us to reckon ourselves dead to it. And he does so because he knows that idols by nature are destructive. Idols destroy those who use them. They limit us. They they promise us pleasure but instead they give us prison. Now, what, what what are we to take from all this? And how, what, what does this mean for us? Well, what he's saying here is that if we we're to do preventative maintenance in our lives, then we must learn how to fight temptation. He's saying that each one of us has a desire. We want to do these things. I want you to put yourself, I want you to consider yourselves dead to them. And it means you've got to learn how to fight this temptation that wars against your soul. Now, remember, as Christians, we have three enemies. What are they? The first one is the the world the world that is the the lust of the eyes the desires of the flesh uh, the boasting of what one has and does according to first john chapter 2 verse 15 through 17 or it's anything that makes sin look normal and make righteousness look strange that's what worldliness is next we have our what the world the Flesh, flesh, this is the the unredeemed part of our humanity that will not see and understand the completion of that redemption until we are in glory and receive glorified bodies. Paul called it a body of death. These are the desires and the impulses, these dents of disobedience that we have that war against the Spirit of God and what God wants. They're in our heart. This is why when you hear people say the heart wants what it wants, and this is when Paul, uh, Jeremiah says, but the heart is des- desperately sick. Who can understand it? Because our hearts, we want things that seem natural to us, but they're enmity toward God. It's the spirit of the Antichrist that is at work within us. So we have to understand that we have this war against the world, the flesh, and then what's the last one? What? The powers of darkness, the devil, right? Now, the devil is a real being. He is not uh, as we've said before not he doesn't have a black goatee and the red skin and the half human half goat body and walk around with a pitchfork that is not the devil. But the devil is a very real spirit creature. He is a fallen angel. Matter of fact, he was an archangel. He helped lead the other angels, excuse me, according to Isaiah and Ezekiel, lead the other angels in praise of almighty God. He was in essence the worship leader in heaven. Until iniquity was found in him, and he was cast out of heaven. And now the iniquity was, is in essence, it was pride, in that he wanted praise for himself. And that he was cast down from, earth, from heaven to earth. And that's where he is the devil. He, and he masquerades, because he's been in God's presence, he knows, in essence, how things are supposed to go. He masquerades as an angel of light. So we think of him being in, in you know, you, you can think of some of the most scary things with demons and horror movies and all that kind of thing. But where he's at his best is when he's working in the church and looks like righteousness. That's where he does his best work, where he pretends to be religious. So we have, uh, and, and we have the devil working against us, and his main weapon um, is lies or lies. Jesus even said that he is the father of lies. He's been lying since the very beginning. And he knows how to use and manipulate and distort and, div- and blind the minds of unbelievers and make sin look great. And See, he uses the desires of the flesh. He knows us really well. He has a playbook on your life. So he looks at your life and he uses the world to help make that sin that you want available, normal, uh, okay, acceptable. And he uses the world and your flesh to his advantage in order to bring you down. And he wants to get you to sin, to show that you really aren't a believer. It's his, it's his way of trying to get to God by getting to you. Just as, I mean, just as if I wanted to um, get to you, and I, I, I find the most susceptible way is to get to your kids. That's how people can get to us. As a matter of fact, I I had a man in my church in Chicago who had an issue. He was a man who was not well mentally, and spiritually he wasn't well. And he had an issue with a man and uh, several men in the church. And rather than go to them and talk to them and go after them, he went after their children. He started writing flyers and sprinkling it on their their doorsteps and around the neighborhood accusing them of all of these vile and awful things. And he spread all of this just this hatred and poison into the community. And so these, these were adult children were wondering what happened. And we figured out that he was angry at their parents. So he went after their kid, his, their kids. See, that's how the devil operates. The devil can't get to God. So he goes for his children, which is us who have placed their faith and trust in Christ. And he will do anything to get you to sin. And so we have to learn to make sure that we fight against this temptation, and the temptation can come in so many different ways through the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, how do we fight temptation? Where do we look? We, for many of us, I don't know about you, but I always need an example, someone to, to, that I can look at and say, okay, that's what it looks like. I mean, you can tell me to do this, this, and this, but when you show me, it helps me. It's like with my daughter. She, I was watching her uh, basketball game the other day, and watching seventh-grade girl, girls basketball is it, it's painful. Um, and I'm watching this and I'm, I'm, I'm in my head and watching all the fundamentals and they're missing this and that. And so after the game, I'm telling her what to do. And my wife is rolling her eyes at me going, no, that doesn't work. You can tell her till you're blue in the face. You have to show her. You have to show her. And we all, we're all like that, are we not? I mean, well, you can tell me, but show me. And so what we need to do in order for someone to show us how to fight temptation, we go to the best example in the world, and that is Jesus himself. Jesus. We look at Jesus and see how he fought temptation. Now, some people would say, Jesus doesn't understand temptation. He never gave in to temptation. He was sinless. How can he really relate to me? He's like this high and lifted up. Uh, God, for crying out loud, how can I identify him? He can't really get me. Now, I think that we're, we're misunderstanding who really Jesus is in that regard, because it's only those who have managed to go through the temptation successfully that know how powerful it is. See, C.S. Lewis described it this way. I want to share this quote with you. He says, No man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. Have you ever noticed that? I I find that uh, Benjamin Franklin actually was trying to do all these different virtues and perform them, and the one that he he never could master was chastity. And as he kept trying to master it, he realized how evil he really was. And that's what Lewis is talking about here. No, one, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. So he, they're giving in to this temptation over and over and over again. Those who are bad, they don't know how really strong it is, but Jesus knows how powerful it is, and yet he passed through it. As Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, that he, that he was sinless. He had no sin. Now, uh, Wayne Grudem, a theologian, writes it like this. He says, many theologians have pointed out that not only he who successfully resists a temptation to the end most fully feels the force of that temptation. Just as a champion weightlifter who successfully lifts and holds overhead the heaviest weight in the contest feels the force of it more fully than one who attempts to lift it and drops it. So any Christian who has success fully faced a temptation to the end knows that it is far more difficult than giving in to it at once. So it was with Jesus. Every temptation he faced, he faced to the end and triumphed over it. The temptations were real, even though he did not give in to them. In fact, they were most real because he did not give in to them. So we, we look to Jesus to see what he did. Now, here's, I'm going to give you several practical steps, and I'm going to walk through these very quickly. Um, and we're going to be looking not just at Jesus, but seeing throughout the Scriptures and experience how we can help uh, resist temptation. Now, looking at Jesus and seeing how the devil came to him, we see Jesus responding to temptation by doing one thing we can all do. Speak the Scriptures. That's the first thing that we can write down. Jesus is, is confronted again and again by the devil, and he quotes the Scriptures to him. Now, we have to understand again that the devil knows the Scripture better than you do, you or I do, and he's even quoting them to Jesus, trying to, to misinterpret them. So we have to be very careful. But here, he's quoting the Scripture in order to avoid temptation. Here's some uh, Scriptures that we need to remind ourselves about, like 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. That's on page 957. You could turn with me if you wish, um, page 957, and the scripture says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he would not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Or First Corinthians 6.18, page 955, so flip back a couple pages. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. See, learning these scriptures, knowing them, help us when we can speak the scriptures in that time of need, when we we memorize them. That's why in uh, in, in Psalm 119.11, the scripture says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. You know, why is that? Why do we memorize scripture? We need to be better at memorizing scripture, by the way. But I I think of uh, memorizing Scripture and knowing Scripture, uh, I think many of us really don't know. We don't memorize Scripture so that when temptation comes, we're not prepared. I'm reminded of as Joel's brother Tim, Tim Bedall, was telling a story one time how he uh, had come upon, he was coming back from a a 5B's catering event, and he had just come upon an accident. That had occurred. A man had been thrown from the car. The car had rolled. If I remember correctly, he was bleeding on the side of the road. Tim was one of the first people there. Someone had called the ambulance, but Tim went and grabbed this this man's body. And it, I mean, man, and he's bleeding all over. And, and he goes, "I'm in shock. I don't know what to do, and and I don't know what what to what to do or what to touch. And I get my adrenaline's running, and I'm shaking all over. And just as I'm 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 touching him and trying to figure out how to help him, uh, the EMTs arrived. And he said they just went went right into action. They knew exactly what to do. They knew where to grab. They knew where to touch. They knew where to move. And it was, they were ready to go. Why? Because they had trained themselves that they, not to be overcome by what was going on in that moment in time, their training took over. See, when we memorize the scriptures and we face temptation, the training of the word of God takes over. It tells us what to do, how to respond, how to handle this crisis, how to deal with it. The problem that many of us have is that we have not hidden God's word in our heart. We need to learn how to hide his word. It means memorizing the truth, reading the truth of the word of God. Now, secondly, we must make sure that we're also spurning spiritual landmines. Spurning spiritual landmines. Now, this is pretty easy, pretty simple. Uh, It's this. If you have a problem, for example, with alcohol, then you shouldn't be hanging around the bar pretty simple. Don't go in there. That's the demilitarized zone to you. You know that zone in between North Korea and South Korea, and it's, matter of fact, there's been a lot of landmines in there, and people don't go venturing in there because they're afraid of stepping on a landmine. That's what it needs to be. If that is your dent of disobedience, you need to know and stay away from those spiritual landmines. If it is pornography, for example, if that is your, your sin of choice, and it seems like that is a very, very um, prevalent even within the church today, then you probably shouldn't either have a smartphone or you shouldn't be having your tablet or laptop uh, away from everybody else that they can't see you. Now, some people, I know some people that just take their computer and throw it out entirely or change their phone or whatever they need to do in order to stop sinning. And some people say, well, I need it for my work. Well, then you need to invoke other people to help you in your fight with sin. There's not an excuse to stay in it. There's just not. We're to be radical in how we deal with sin. We need to make sure that we're spurning spiritual landmines. We also need to make sure that we're taking out the triggers, Taking out the triggers. Now, this is very, it's related directly to spurting spiritual landmines. But this means if there are things that are causing you to sin. Now, again, those things don't cause you to sin. Your heart does. But your heart is triggered by some of these things if you have access to it. And it's good to take out the triggers. It's like, for example, in my yard, there's a little bit, little hole that is covered over, and I can't see it if I'm just walking. And if, I, if I'm walking across it because the grass is overgrown, I'll step in it. Now, what do I need to do in order to make sure that I don't keep tripping over the hole? Fill it, right? So it's just common sense, and I need to take that out so I don't keep tripping over that thing. It's the same idea. This is what Jesus meant in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30. It's on page 810. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, what are you to do? Tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members that then that your whole body go to hell. Now, what's Jesus saying? Obviously, he's not literally saying you should cut off your hand. If that's the case, then we'd all be completely maimed and no one could walk or see. We'd be blind people walking all around. That's not the point. The point is, is he's using hyperbole, intentional overstatement, to convey the idea of being serious in your fight with sin. Don't play around with it. That's not what we're to do. We're to be serious and make sure that we are taking out these triggers, doing radical things to help keep us from sinning. Now, a fourth thing that we can do is label the lies. Label the lies. Now, it's interesting. Uh, Jojo, my uh, 15-month-old son, he's learning new words. And it's great to hear him learn new words. You know, he's walking around now, Ball. Ball points at ba. So when he goes to Target and sees those big red things out there, he goes crazy. You know, ball, 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 ball. And, and, and we're grateful when he learns new words. Like last night, we got done praying, and he goes, amen. It was great to hear him say that and learn new words. And it's good when he's, he's growing in maturity because he's learning different things, right? He can label different things. And I remember when Mariah was getting ready to go into kindergarten over at Freeman, they did this test on Mariah. And they, they sat her down and, uh, and I didn't know what to expect with this test. So they sit her down and they, they make her point to different things. And in my head, I'm wanting to help. You know, as a matter of fact, I want to take the test. I'm like, blue. Good. I'm ready for kindergarten. Great. Um, and uh, they ask her, you know, what color is this? What color is that? Can you pick this up and walk this over here and bring it back? If she could follow simple commands. And then they ask her about different parts of her body. So they point to different things, and they said, what is this? This is your nose, and this is your ear. And I'm like, wow, we've taught her well. You know, we're, we're good parents. And then they, they say, what is this? She's like, you know, this is my neck. And then they ask what this is, and it's the Achilles heel. And she's like, I don't know. And I'm like, oh. And they're like, that's okay. She got more than three-quarters of what other kids get. And it made me feel good because she could label the different parts of the body. And it's good when we can learn what something is, and we can label it for what it is. And and see, the same is true with the devil's tactics. When we see his tactics, we can label it for what it is. Then that, when we can label it for what it is, then there's an aspect of control and knowledge about it that comes with it. Just like we can name parts of our body, and where different things are, we can name it and, and then then be a master over it or know about it. See, the devil, what he does is he just keeps us in this, this uh, kind of nebulous place where we don't ever understand or grow. And when we can label the lie for what it is, now we, we're in essence taking his mask off. We're removing the, the curtain and we can see the wizard, if you will for all he is, that it's removed, that stinger is now gone, because he uses lies, and he seeks to lie, to kill, and destroy, then we can identify his lies, because he always uses lies. What did he do with um, Eve in the Garden of Eden? He lied to her. That's why Jesus is saying that he is a father of lies. He always uses lies. He makes sin look great and fun, and your friends are doing it, and it's okay, and there doesn't seem to be any consequences. And look at these celebrities, and look at all these famous people. They're doing it. It can't be bad. Or my friend's doing it. They're not hurting with it yet. But we see that just because it hasn't acted immediately doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It will happen. It will happen, so we may have to make sure that we are labeling Satan's lies. It's like the, the man that I, I, I've heard, he says why he had an affair. He's like, my wife doesn't understand me anymore. This woman understands me. She, 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 can, she hears me, and my wife has become a different person, and I, I can't handle this any longer, and, and I'm not attracted anymore. And he starts saying, he gives every excuse, trying to, to legitimize why he has now committed adultery and having an affair with this woman. And, and this woman's a lot younger, and he's like, she understands me, she, she relates to me, I can talk to her. And I was like, let's stop here for a moment, let's identify the lie. First of all, the lie is that you think this woman understands you more than your wife. Now, let's take four children and put it in with her, and put all of the different stuff going on, and we'll see how much she understands you. And you're going to find out that you say your wife doesn't understand you, it's the opposite. I'd say she really understands you. Matter of fact, that's that's why you're struggling because she knows your ins and outs and you don't like that. You have to be able to identify. That's a lie. To say that this woman understands and this one doesn't is a complete lie. It's wrong. And people legitimize it all the time and God will have none of it. God says, are you being faithful in your covenant before me? Are you being faithful? Label the lie for what it is. And deal with it, because when you label the lie, you can forsake it and deal with it. The next one is, is more under the surface and is harder to identify, but we must afford to find victory. And, and not only is it a lie, I mean, this is connected closely to the lie, but it's learning how to run from rationalism. Run from rationalism. We are masters at finding excuses to do stuff or not do stuff, or to engage in sin. I see this with people where they, uh, uh, especially when you have people dealing with, I mean, depending on what the sin is, it could be an alcoholic, it could be uh, a glutton, or someone who's anorexic, and they'll say, "I, I have been doing so well that I'm going to treat myself to engage in that sin, whatever that sin might be. So they try, see, look, they're rationalizing it. They're thinking it through. They're saying that I can do this because I did so well then. I can do just a little bit. I, I've been doing so good at my purity that I can just look at this website. It's going to be okay. Or I can watch this scene in this movie, even though it's, it's bad. I, I'll be okay. And we start rationalizing it. This is where I like the, the SMS, the, the, what my father-in-law calls the SMS. Sin makes you stupid. It's really easy to remember. You can remember, instead of run from rationalism, just remember that sin makes you stupid. Because when you start doing that sin, you start trying to find excuses to cover up that sin and legitimize that sin. There's no legitimizing it. God's word is true. Don't run from rationalizing your sin. This is why we come back and we see what the word of God says. Like in verse 6, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. He's saying that because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You can excuse it, You can try to label it different. You can try to show up in church and pretend you're okay. And you can shout hallelujah. But if you keep doing it, understand, God's not fooled. You can fool the people around you and make them think that you're the holiest saint in the world. But God's wrath is coming. It's not going to stop it. And it's because of these things that the wrath of God is coming. Paul writes more about this on page 978. That's... That's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 through 12. And he explains this and draws this out further. He says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is, an idolater. Notice that term, idolater. He's labeling all this as idolatry. Has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. He's saying that you can have your name on a church roll. You can sign membership commitments. You can be involved in small group. But those things don't save. It's only in our faith in Christ, which is shown in our actions. He says... take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. He's saying expose them. We have to let the Word of God speak to us, and we understand that the wrath of God is coming. And we need to run from any type of rationalism that allows us to continue in sin. And what I know is, and what I've seen and experienced is even in churches, I see this. I mean, I see this going on in churches all the time. And we've had many people that have sat in the exact seats that many of you are seated, sitting in right now, and have come in and they don't like sin, and they said, "I really don't agree with that." And they go to another church that says it's okay to continue in that sin. In our community, and I and I stop and I go, and I, I hurt for them, and I hurt for that church, and I hurt for that pastor. Because that pastor is going to have to stand before God. I'm not saying that we're perfect. I'm not saying that we, we've got everything right. There's some great churches around. But when you are saying that it's completely okay to engage in homosexuality or you can do this sin and it's, it's all right, you're against the word of God. You've gone outside of God's word, completely outside of it, whatever it might be. We have to run from that rationalism. We must live as children of light and run from any thought that enables us to continue our sin. Now, here's a sixth ta- tactic for you. We need to make sure that we are uh, learning how to direct our desires or direct the desires that we have. We all have desires, but we must channel them to their proper lanes. We must learn, relearn how to exercise those desires in the proper venues if we can. Paul gives us an idea of this when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.27, and that's page 957 if you want to turn there. He says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Now, it's, it's, interestingly enough, the word he uses there, discipline, literally means um, make it my slave to, to strike back in blue. It's a picture of an athlete, a boxer, who does all he can to disciple himself or discipline himself to keep his body under rigorous control in order that he might serve and not hinder his progress to the goal. Now, we have to direct our desires and let them know who's boss. Now, here's a way to do that. Fasting is a way to do that. Fasting is a way to do that. And here's how. When you fast, you have that desire to eat that comes up and rears its head. Every, it seems like every moment. You know, for those who have ever fasted, you don't, fasting seems hard until you really do it. and You find out it's much more hard than you thought. <laughs> Because when you start fasting, suddenly you're starting to think about food all the time. You didn't think about that much before, but you're thinking about it. When am I going to eat next? When am I going to drink next? What am I going to eat? And you start thinking of that, and it becomes uh, just part of you, and you're, 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 you're aware much more of it. And you have to work through that because you're telling that physical desire, which is good to eat, but it's, you're saying that, that I am more than just my body, that my spirit will rule over you for a time where I'm putting it into subjection. I'm telling you that we're going to go without something. And you're breaking that hold on you for a period of time. And what that does, fasting then enables us to not only say no to that food and delight in God, but enables us to transfer that into other areas. I don't need to do this behavior any longer. You're not going to have mastery over me. I can have mastery over this because of God. I can have mastery over this now as well. It's transferring that same principle to it that we have to learn to direct the desires. Now, the next tactic is one that is often overlooked by the previous point, but we must make sure that we are communicating our needs clearly. Now, I'm I'm referring to this more within the, the physical realm between a husband and wife. For those that are single, this is different. You have to make sure that you are directing them, that you are honing them, that you are making sure that you're giving unto the Lord and laying them at his feet. For those who are married in that married relationship, they have to make sure that they are communicating with each other clearly about their needs. Because I've seen some spouses try to say to their spouse, I don't like what you want to do, and I'm going to now punish you and force you to be disciplined not to do this. That's not your job. Your job is to help communicate, and Paul even talks about this, that you should come away for a time, but then come back together, I mean, to refrain from intimacy and then to have intimacy again so you won't be tempted by the devil because we are weak in that regard. So you need to be communicating both husband and wives. We need to be sacrificial. We need to make sure that we are communicating. Now, there are times where restraint is necessary, especially in the marital relationship when there's children or in the menopause years uh, or stresses going on in our lives. But we need to make sure that we are communicating our needs. Now, when I say that, that doesn't mean or that's not to be used to legitimize things that are perverse or unbiblical to introduce things that are impure on the side of God into the marriage relationship. So make sure that that is very, very clear. But we do need to communicate our needs. We are physical beings. We do seek to have intimacy with one another. And then we can go off into temptation areas when we are not trying to to cultivate that. Now, again, no one's going to meet our needs perfectly in that regard, but we need to communicate them and be open about them and talking to one another about them. Now, this list is by no means comprehensive, but it's it's a star to help you in your fight with temptation. Now, let's pick up at verse 7. In, those two, in, those, in these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Put on the new self. Now, I was watching this uh, video of Michael Jordan this past week, and uh, Michael Jordan was talking about his shoes that he has, that he's had made, his Jordan brand, and he talked about when he was a player, and he said that every single time that he played, he, play- he, he got a new pair of shoes that he, he used for that game. He would never use the same pair of shoes twice. Uh, now, many of us don't have that luxury <laughs> to do that, but what he said was, is I do this because I like that feeling that new shoes give. Do You remember when you were a kid, and you got those new shoes, and it thought it made you faster? For him, he said, I think it makes me play better. When I have those new shoes, it makes me feel good. And see, here, what Paul is saying is that you've got to take off that old shoes, that old way of life, and put on this new one. You can put on new that new life all the time, that we're being renewed, always made new in the sight of God is what that means. And, and it's the idea of taking off that grungy, dirty clothes. You ever had that? You come home from work, and you're just gross. When I was a teenager, um, I had the job of baling hay. Anybody here baled hay before? it is a nasty job. And of course, I was young and dumb. So they made me carry all of them and work in the barn. Now the barn is one of the worst places to work because there's no ventilation. It's just straight. If it's, if it's 95 degrees outside, it's 110 or 115 in there. And the thing about baling hay is you can't wear shorts. We'd have city kids come out all the time and they would wear shorts and we're like, it would last maybe an hour. Because you're sweating so bad, it'll cling to you. So you had to wear full jeans, you had a t-shirt on, and you wanted to keep it light. And you're working in this, this uh, th- it, almost like a sauna. And you're just grabbing these 100-pound bales, and you're carrying them. And, and the, the hay is flying in the air, alfalfa, whatever it is. And it clings to your, your body, and it gets on your shirt. Your shirt is going in your shirt, and it's going up your nose, and in your ears, and your eyes. I'm mean, seriously, it, it, you look like Swamp Thing when you get done. And, you, you know, you blow your nose for a week, and it's, like, green. Um, and it's just what it feels like. When you get home, you are so glad to tear that off, to get in the shower, to be cleansed, to get all of that off of you, and then put on a new, fresh set of clothes, and then have a nice glass of lemonade. <laughs> just feels refreshed, right? And that's what he's saying there, to take off that old way, to take it off. It's gross. Take it off. Step in the shower of his grace, and be renewed. Renewed in the image of our creator. He's saying live as a new creation. That's what he's saying. That's the point I want you to write down. To live as a new creation. We need to live as a new cre- creature. He says you were used to live in this way. You are used to walk in this way. But now you've got to take that off. You've got to put it off. That old self. and You've got to put on this new self. Which is being renewed. Now, I want us to look at verse 8 for a moment. I want to see what's going on here and how we live as this new creation according to this passage. He says, But now you must put them all away anger, wrath, malice, slander, I'm seeing talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Now, let me ask you a question. When do you get angry? What makes you angry? What gets you angry? I mean, what makes you then want to be wrathful? When do you act malicious toward others? When do you slander? What about obscene talk or lying to one another? You know, isn't this, doesn't this happen in our everyday interactions with people? When we have to deal with people, when you deal with your boss and your boss is being unrealistic towards you, or that other, that coworker who's trying to slander you and you want to slander him back and get them back for what they've done. Or when this person is oppressing you and being mean to you or persecuting you or trying to, to get you fired. Or, or when you're dealing with that classmate who's jealous of you or you're jealous of them and you want to put them down and promote yourself to show how good you are and how bad they are. Is that, is that not how we do things? And Paul is getting right to the, the matter there. He's saying, no, 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 that's the old way of life. And in the new way of life, to live as a new creation requires us to restrain our reactions. To restrain our reactions. He's saying, don't get angry there. He's saying, don't, don't be wrathful. Don't be malicious. It's restraining our reactions. We all have a tendency to put our best foot forward, to put on a good face, to make ourselves look pretty or better than we are. When I want to truly see how a person is, I like to actually put them on, um, on a, in a, and put him in a game situation, either a sport or have them play a board game. Because I find that I learn more about a person when I'm playing a board game than I do in, in months of conversation. I remember I worked with a pastor one time who was this really nice guy, but I would watch him on the basketball court and he was yelling at the referees all the time and, and he was uh, just angry at people all the time. And I could see that he could be vengeful on the court. And I'm like, how do you react like that as a Christian? I mean, I get heated in the moment. I'll get angry, but I don't get get—I'm angry at people. I usually get angry at myself. But he's always going after them. And I'm like, that's just what you really are as a person. We have to make sure that we're, we're being, uh, watching our reaction. How are, how do you act when people question you, question you, question your motives? Do you, Just lash out and spew forth poison. Now, I'm not saying you can't get angry. Ephesians chapter 4 says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. See, we can get angry, but don't sin in your anger. You can control your reaction. I'm not saying that you bottle it all all up and not get angry. What I'm saying is, is don't spew forth poison on people or explode in a rage and beat someone up or berate those around you. Now, living as a new creation also requires us to change our conversation. Change our conversation. We have to learn how to to speak. The words obscene talk mean filthy language, dirty talk, abusive speech. We need to change our conversation. The Bible talks a great deal about our speech, especially the book of Proverbs. We need to watch what we say and what we say about others. Are we meaning to put them down? Are we meaning to build them up? That's why in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 through 6, we read, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. See, the reason we watch that is because other people are listening to our conversation. What would other people gather about you in your conversation? So if you're at the grocery store and you're talking to someone that you see, and people were walking by, what would they learn about Jesus just in that brief moment? I'm not saying you have to say Jesus, 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 Jesus every moment and persons walking by. But if you're sitting there for a moment, are you talking bad about people? Or if you're sitting at the basketball game or, uh, um, you know, you're watching baseball or whatever it might be and the other people are sitting in the bleachers with you and what you're sharing with someone else, are those around you going to benefit from that? Are they going to be able to see Jesus in that moment? That's the important thing. How do you do that? We're to make... Best use of our time. Notice the next part, the first part of verse, verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practice. Now, Why would you want to lie to someone else? Why do we lie? I think there's a few options. Number one, we lie to get out of situations that we know that we're in trouble. We either also lie to make ourselves look um, make what we did look better than it was or, or lessen the effect of it or promote ourselves to look better than we are. Because and, and that's what he's saying here. Don't lie to one another. Don't try to make yourself look better than you are, to more holy than you are, to make yourself look so great. He's saying here, don't be, in essence, I want you to shun self-promotion. Don't try to lie to yourself or lie to others to make yourself look good. Shun self-promotion. And we see this all the time. In our world right now, it's all about promoting yourself. YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. How many hits can I get? How many likes can I get? How many people will read this? How many people will see this? And, and as Christians, we can disguise this as ministry. I'm doing it for the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not saying that you can't, you know, put yourself out there, especially if you're looking for a job. I mean, I, I honestly, the one thing I hate more than any other thing are resumes. Because resumes just are talking about myself. What I did. I was so great. And on my resume, I hate that. And, and people try to make themselves look great, and, and, and we embellish things. I mean, I, I've done this, and I, and I hate it. It's like, you know, I did this. I did that. I moved this. Uh, I helped oversee this and that. And we make ourselves look so great. I hate that. I mean, it's not that you can't be honest about accomplishments. That's not the point. The idea is bragging. And he's saying, don't lie to one another. Don't try to make yourself look better than you are. Just be who you are and let it stand. Notice also, we're to consider our crucifixion. Notice verse seven. He says, In these two you once walked when you were living in them. Now why not? Why aren't they living in it anymore? Notice verse nine. Do not lie to another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. When did you put off the old self? The idea is that we were crucified with Christ. We need to consider our crucifixion that we're dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Now let me move rather quickly through these this next point. Practicing preventative maintenance also means making sure that we marvel at his continual transformation. You know, you're being transformed. You are being transformed. If you have Christ in you, God is shaping you and honing you to be like Jesus. That's why he says to be renewed, to made new in the image of a creator. God is continually shaping you, directing you, and removing the things in your life. He is making you look like Jesus. We're to put on this new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in our Creator. Now, how do we get renewed in knowledge? How do we do that? What is this knowledge? It's referring to the Word of God. We need to make sure that we are washing ourselves with the Word. If you want to be transformed, it doesn't happen apart from the Word of God. It doesn't. It means being being reading the word of God, letting the word of God read us, washing our minds with the word, reading the word of God, breaking it down piece by piece and letting it then read us. Now, I mentioned before that we're also not to lie to one another Um, and we need to be renewed in knowledge. It means being together, that one another. and, And look at verse 11. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He's saying, when he's saying do not lie to one another, it's referring to the body of Christ primarily. That one another means that they're together. And he says here, it's in the body of Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. We are to be together as a body. If we want to be transformed, that it happens by fellowshipping with the faithful. That's the next point you need to write down. Fellowshipping with the faithful. You need to be in church. And with the body of Christ. If you want to be changed to become who God wants you to be, you need to be with God's people, period. I had one man tell me, you know what, I just like coming into church and I like just to I don't like to have be tied to anything, and I just like to hear the word of God and, and out, and I'm good. I'm like, you know, that's nice, but it's a lie. And it's not biblical. The idea is basically you're saying, I don't want people to speak into my life because I don't like people. I want God and not his church. It doesn't come with it. Just like I've shared before, if you get me, invite me over, I get to bring my wife. You get me and the bride. Many of you would just rather have the bride. If you get the bride, you get the groom. That's how it goes. And it's the same with the body of Christ. You want Jesus? Church comes with it. You can't have Jesus without the church. You can't have that guest over and not her. I would be heavily offended if you said you could come over, but your wife can't come over. I would be heavily offended if you said that to me. Um, and it's the same. How do you think Jesus feels saying that you can have, you want me, but you don't want my church? Which is my bride? That I died to save? We, make sure, we need to make sure that we are, we are fellowshipping, with God's, fellowshipping with God's faithful. We need to be together. Now, I said a moment earlier that we're to be renewed in knowledge. Now, washing with the Word doesn't just mean reading it ourselves. It also means that we need to be doing what you're doing right now and that's sitting under the Scriptures. Just as Joel was talking about when he was praying, that we need to open the Word of God and let the Word of God speak through his servants that are preaching. It's amazing how he has ordained preaching. Do you know that? God has has taken this means of men shouting. And opening the Word of God to change hearts and minds. That when we're under the Word of God, God's speaking to us in very profound ways. He's performing spiritual surgery. We need to be under God's Word. Just as Paul wrote to Timothy, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. I remember speaking to uh, my uh, relative of a uh, a distant cousin. And uh, they were talking about how the church they went to. He goes, I like going to that church. They don't shout. Well, I'm like, wow, you need to be in a different church. Because that means they're not excited about God's word. And I'm not saying that every pastor has to shout. That's not my point. What I'm saying is that they're preaching. The Word of God. We need to be able to preach and proclaim the Word of God. It is God's ordained means for soul transformation to take place as people are speaking the Word of God to the people of God, and the Spirit of God is awakening the person to who he is, fellowshipping with the faithful and sitting under the Scriptures. Now, this transformation also involves breaking down barriers. Barriers. Breaking down barriers. In verse 11, we read this. Here, there is not Greek and Jew. It's a way of saying Gentile. Greek is a, an overarching term here. saying there's not a Greek and then there's not a Jew. There's not the circumcised, the covenant community, and the uncircumcised, the not covenant community. There's not a barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Those who are in slavery and out of, that are, 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 are freemen. But Christ is all and in all. What he's saying there is this. Christ is in all types of people. And he levels the playing field. He's saying there that we're all one in Christ Jesus, that we're all equal in Christ Jesus. And what divides us is so much less than what unites us. And what unites us is Christ, that he levels that. He removes the racial divisions. He removes the geographical divisions. He removes the socioeconomic divisions. He puts us all together in Christ. That we're not to be racist, sexist, classist. I was speaking to our brother Soleimani last week, and he was talking about how he was in Congo. And uh, he was mentioning that when he was in Congo, that his mother was of a certain tribe. And his father was uh, Congolese, but his mother was uh, from Bur- Rwanda, Burundi. Do you remember, David? Burundi. And so she, because she was of this tribe in Congo, they, the, the people there didn't like that. So they actually killed Soleimani's father, because he had married this certain race, and they came after Salamani because he was half of this race. It was this racism. So he had to flee from Congo and go to Burundi, and then eventually making his way to Kenya because of racial divisions that are there. See, he's saying here, that doesn't exist in Christ. That what we have together unites us and removes those racial boundaries because we have something that is so much greater that God's intent and purpose was always to reach the world. And that we can 't have that racism thinking that we 're better or that socioeconomic issue that one person thinks they 're better than another because this person has money and doesn 't have money that 's not how the body of Christ is to be. I mean we see even even the slaves and the free people are like, well why don't he doesn't um, Paul talk about removing slavery that wasn 't his point in the text. The point was is to show that how to survive and live in the system that was so prevalent in the ancient society, and we also see in Galatians chapter three verse twenty eight paul um, expands this a little bit, and he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, is he saying there that I'm removing the person's gender? No, he's saying that we are all equal in Christ, and he's exalting the status of women. Matter of fact, the Gnostic Gospels, these are Gospels that were um, not of God, they're spurious, they're they're heretical. There's a part of it where it talks about Mary Magdalene that said that she must become a man to enter the kingdom of God. That's screwed up. That's messed up. And that's, I mean, obviously that's not of the gospel. We, see that, we don't see that at all in the Bible. We see the opposite. We're saying that everyone is created in the beauty of their gender, and God brings us all in equal in Christ with differentiation of role. But we're equal in Christ. We see Christ exalting women. In the New Testament, as we've shared before, when when women in ancient society were not allowed to testify in legal matters, who is it that becomes the beneficiary, uh, uh, the first one to witness Christ's resurrection? A woman. It's amazing. See, God is equaling and he's he's giving he's promoting the genders. And he's say, exalting women, and he's bringing them, and showing that there's an equality. And it's and it goes. So what we have in Christ goes beyond race, it goes beyond class, it goes beyond gender. And he exalts us in that regard. and makes us all one in Christ. And we have to break down those barriers. Which means you need to be able to talk to someone of a different race. Please, don't don't say you can say we're different. Yeah, but learn. And don't please don't say these people. I don't care what race it is. Don't say that. Let them know who they are as a person. And you learn a lot. I find I learn a lot from, from interacting with other people. I learn about who God is. And I learn that I'm not the only, I'm not the only smart person out there. Matter of fact, I'm, there's not many smart people. Matter of fact, a lot more people smarter than me. You ever seen that show? You're, you're, hold on. You ever seen that show, you're smarter than a, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? I have a conclusion about that show. We teach fifth graders stupid stuff. That's what I'm thinking. Because we have all these useless facts. We need to teach people how to get along with each other in different races and backgrounds and, and how to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and break down those barriers in Christ, that we have this unity in Christ. And we need to speak out and say, you might be different, but I want to learn. I want to grow. It doesn't mean I have to do what you do, but it helps me to understand where you come from, to see that you're a person, that you love God, I love God. And that's fantastic. I love the fact that we have campus Español going on right now. I love that fact. I hope and pray that God brings many different tribes and tongues and uses our building to do it and have churches. I would love to have an Arabic campus or a Bhutanese campus or a French campus or a Russian campus or whatever it is. All people coming together to praise the name of God because we've been brought together in Christ and what we have is greater than anything that could divide us. And the Bible is chock full of that. And it breaks my heart when people use that to justify racism that the Bible can really condemns when you look at it. That God is bringing us all together in Christ for Christ is all and in all for the glory of his name. And another aspect of us being transformed this is my last point It involves us not just breaking down these barriers, but then celebrating this newfound community that we have, that we've been brought in, this new family of God, this new body of Christ. That's why he's saying there's neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor barbarian, Scythian, all for Christ is all and in all. We need to celebrate this. I love the fact that we have diversity. We need to have more diversity. I love the fact that we have different tribes and different tongues and different nations represented here. I mean, even today, I'm looking out and I'm seeing seeing people that come from from India. I see people coming from Congo. I see people coming from Iraq. This is fantastic. Isn't that great? We need to see that more and more. And it's going to take work. It's going to feel a little uncomfortable at times. But we need to work and talk and work through that awkwardness. Because when you're talking to someone, you're like, well, it's awkward. You think it's not awkward for them? They're trying to speak your language. I'm amazed that they're coming to this country, to, and they're speaking and learning our culture. I barely can speak English, and they're having to learn two or three languages? That's phenomenal to me. What is God doing? See, God is showing us within his word how we are to live before him, fighting temptation, living his new creation, and marveling at this transformation that he is working within us. For the glory of His name, let's pray. Father, I thank You and I praise You that You have called us unto Yourself. I thank You that You are You are our, You have created each one of us and all of our different racial backgrounds, and Lord, You've brought us together in the person of Christ. And Lord, that You are showing us how we are to live, that we are to put off these old practices and and uh, put on this new life that You've given unto us. And Lord, may we continually be renewed and grow and be transformed, knowing that we, we aren't what we were years ago, but we are being made into and conformed into your image, looking like the person of your Son. And, Lord, may we see the world through new eyes. May we celebrate what unites us, and may we may downplay the differences that we have. May we learn to dialogue with one another, and may we learn to encourage one another to fight uh, fight the strategies of the devil, that we may not sin against you, but we might glory in your name and grow in joy before you. We thank you, we praise you for all that you've done and all that you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, To remind you tonight, we have Generations. Um, Also, again, the UIM Banquet, if you have any questions about that, ask.